Good afternoon, everyone. Such a joy to be with you. Welcome to everyone that attends uh, on a weekly basis. It's always a you know real heartwarming and very um, kind of a spiritual experience to see everyone, especially on an Arab Shabbos. Uh, if you have your cameras on, it's you know really helpful. You know, don't feel an obligation, but if you're able to, that is fantastic. Uh, we are also joined today by my longtime friend, Dover Tzvi Hirsch, who uh, uh, Dover is, uh, you know, Ar Hashem bin Atalmud of Yeshiva, and we're very happy to have you join, and continued good health to you, Dover. So this week's Parsha, which is Parsha's Emor, discusses many different topics. We are not today going to go into all the different areas of the Parsha, despite the fact that, uh, you know, that's a fascinating exploration. For those of you who are interested, I did a deep dive on that, both on Thursday night and to a lesser extent on Wednesday morning. If anybody wants the Thursday class, happy to pass that along as well. Today we are going to discuss, as Aaron Yehuda mentioned, the topics of the Omer, Spira, Shabbos, Pesach, Shavuos, and the concept of, if you can, you must, and the idea of what we call today becoming an influencer and understanding that from a Torah point of view. The Gemara in Yevamos, page 62b, this is the Talmud, tells us that the students of Rabbi Akiva actually were 24,000. But before I tell you that story about Rabbi Akiva students, we need to understand that the preface to this story of the students of Rabbi Akiva in the tractate Yevamos comes from the discussion of the obligation to have children and the obligation to establish students. And what the Talmud says is that a person is obligated to have children when they're young and children when they're old. Students when they're young and students when they're old. That's actually an obligation. That's the preface to the story of the students of Rabbi Akiva, the 24,000 uh, deaths that we know of as the tragedy of the Sphira. The preface is the Talmud saying, you have to have students when you're young, you have students when you're old, children when you're young, children when you're old, because you never know what is going to succeed. Now, in my later years in life, as I had children in my mid-40s and now recently at my age, uh, 52 and almost 53, my last child was born uh, just a little bit before my 53rd birthday, and I wanted to share with people the happy good news that would be happening soon of, God willing, another birth in our family, I used to tell them, you know, the Talmud says, that a person is obligated to have children when they're young and children when they're old. And it just happened to be that my namesake, Akiva, is the one that the Talmud is using as a story. It's really my namesake, namesake, because I was named for Rabbi Akiva Eger. Probably he was named for Rabbi Akiva. But nonetheless, that's the idea about the students of Rabbi Akiva dying when they were so numerous, and there were 24,000. But nonetheless, Rabbi Akiva continued even after their deaths to establish other students. And the Talmud says that these 24,000 students that died created a void in the world. The world was desolate. And these 24,000 students were somehow kind of, uh, their loss created this tremendous vacuum in the world. But at the end of the day, Rabbi Akiva taught the five students in the South and those five students with Rabbi Akiva are the ones that caused the Torah to stand at that time. 
Now, the reason that we're talking about this today is not only because we are in the period of the Omer, it's because our Parsha talks about the counting of the Omer. These days that lead us from Pesach to Shavuos, the Torah says, counts 49 days, which is also seven weeks or 50 days, depending how you understand the sentence exactly. And that's the period that we are currently commemorating on our calendar and that the Torah does discuss. So what we're going to do today is kind of try to tie together the concepts of Pesach and Shavuos, which is this time period, the idea of counting days and weeks, which the Torah describes as Shabbosos, because a week is not only a Shavua in the Torah, it's also called a Shabbos. A Shabbos is a credible way to refer to a week. Count seven of those, and then on the 50th day, we celebrate something called Shavuos, and we bring a new offering from the new meal, uh, that means the new grains that were harvested after Passover. The first time that we're allowed to bring from those grains of the new crop in the Holy Temple is once Shavuos arrives. So we're going to try to tie together all of that. But now let's go back into much more detail about the story that the Talmud tells us about the students of Rabbi Akiva. And as Rabbi Nakhiman is pointing out on our chat, when the Talmud says, have students when you're young, have students when you're old, and then it kind of goes into this tangent, related tangent to the story of Rabbi Akiva and his students, the Talmud tells us that Rabbi Akiva had 12,000 pairs of students. It doesn't actually say, does not say 24,000. It says 12,000 pairs of students from Givas until Antifras, two cities that they were inhabiting. To, it's an area between two cities uh, which they spanned. And then the Talmud says that these 12,000 pairs of students died between Pesach and Atzeres. Atzeres is another word for Shavuos. So they died in this period that we are now currently counting the days of the Omer. And that they died because they did not accord each other with respect. They did not give respect to one another. The word is Kavod. On top of that, the Talmud says that they died with a death called Askara which is a throat constriction disease that elsewhere in the Talmud, the Talmud says about this disease that it is actually the worst kind of death. It is the kind of death that is compared to taking a thorn out of wool. If a person has to take a very uh, sticky, so to speak, or multi-pronged thorn out of uh, a a fabric of wool, imagine on the, from a sheep itself, so obviously pieces of the fabric are being pulled as the thorn is being extracted. That would be similar to the soul leaving a body in a very painful manner. Everybody with me on that description? Okay. That's the worst kind of death, Thomas says. Now, we know that the best kind of death, so to speak, uh, no death would be preferable, but of all the deaths in the world, the death that is most preferred is called the death of kissing, nishika, which is how Moshe and Aaron and Miriam die. And that, the Talmud compares, to taking a hair out of milk. Hair out of milk. Right? That's what uh, uh, our friend Rabidal just posted. That's the lightest form of death. So that means it's a very smooth transition, even though it's not perfect because, you know, there's still a little wetness attached, wetness to, the attached hair. to the hair. No. 
considered to be a painful it's not considered to be a painful kind of death it's considered to be a very light form of death now we have to deal with many questions um so you know actually before we get to the questions let me just finish recounting the talmud the talmud says there were twelve thousand pairs and they died in this time period between pesach and shavuos and they died a horrible death the death of Askara, which is the death that we just described and that the world was desolate until Akiva came and taught torah to the students of the south and they are the ones that established the torah at that time so we have many questions first of all why does it say twelve thousand pairs and not twenty four thousand Second of all, why did they die in this time period? If they're not having respect for their fellow man, what does that have to do with Pesach the Shavuos? That's a general problem, right? Third of all, famous question that many people like to ask is that the Kiva is the teacher of you shall not love your neighbor like yourself. And his own students didn't treat each other with respect. Shame on the students, but also shame on Rabbi Akiva, who says that's the most important principle of the Torah. And a question that a woman this past uh, Shabbos and asked me is, Rabbi, was Rabbi Akiva himself being punished or chastised or considered to have done something wrong himself by virtue of the fact that what he considers to be the main principle of the Torah, you should love your neighbor like yourself, his own students don't seem to be practicing. And the truth is, if you read the Talmud, there is no chastisement per se of Rabbi Akiva. The Talmud never says, have students when you're young and students when you're old, because you might mess up with the students that are young. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say have children when you're young, have children when you're old, because you're going to do a better job parenting when you're old. It doesn't say that. It says simply you never know what your efforts will yield, because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you know, your students and your children have free choice. I know a lot of parents don't like to hear that. They actually make me crazy when I tell them, you know, you can't really control your children. I say, Rabbi, don't you have another answer? No. You know, your students, your children have free choice, and therefore, the it's not necessarily the fault of the students and the teachers. And if, in fact, you read this part of the Talmud, it doesn't seem that he is punished for this particular failing of his students. Okay, so if that's true, how do we understand what they did wrong versus what he was teaching them? Meaning, how did the students so badly misunderstand Rivi Kiva? And then on top of that, the Talmud says that the world was desolate. The world was desolate. Why? Says Rashi, because the Torah was forgotten. The Torah was forgotten. Now, obviously, that's only sort of, because immediately after this story, Rabbi Kiva teaches the five students of the South, and as the Talmud itself says, they are the ones that established Torah at that time which necessarily means that the Torah was not forgotten. You know why the Torah was not forgotten? It was because Rabbi Akiva was alive. So why does the Talmud go out of its way to describe the Torah was forgotten if Rabbi Akiva himself, who's considered the father of the oral Torah, and who Moshe Rabbeinu himself says that he should learn Torah from Rabbi Akiva, that's a Midrash, Rabbi Moshe Rabbeinu says he should sit and be a student of Rabbi Akiva. If he's alive, what do you mean the Torah is forgotten? Why are they dying during this time period? And as we mentioned before, why does it say 12,000 pairs and not 24,000 students? And really, what does this whole incident have to do with the giving of the Torah, meaning going from Pesach until Shavuos, which is what the Talmud says, that's the period in which they died. 
So what I would like to suggest that I'm hoping uh, works and, uh, you know, will help us understand a lot of things has a lot to do with our understanding of Pesach and Shavuot, what's happening in that entire, I guess, period in the calendar, and understanding a very specific aspect of the way the Torah describes Pesach in our parasha. When the Torah says, and you shall count for yourself these seven weeks, these 50 days, it says from the day after Shabbos. And this is chapter 23, sentence 15 in our parasha. It says, and you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Shabbos, from the day that you bring the Omer offering, which is on the second day of Pesach, seven complete weeks. And this is a big issue that the rabbis discuss. And they say that the Shabbos in this sentence is actually referring to Pesach. That's bizarre. This is the only time in the Torah where Pesach is called Shabbos. We have a general idea that holidays are a form of Shabbos because we don't do most work on holidays in general. Why is the Torah specifically highlighting Pesach as though it is a Shabbos? And why is the Torah specifically mentioning the idea of counting the Omer from the day after Pesach, which is really the day after Shabbos in the Torah's description, seven Shabbosos? Why is the Torah injecting so much about Shabbos when it comes to counting the Omer, referring to Pesach as Shabbos, and then counting seven Shabbosos? So in a Midrash Zohar, actually, that I shared last night, the Thursday year, that I want to use today um, for a very different emphasis than what we were talking about last night, is that the, the Rabbi Shim Bar Yochai tells us, I'm sorry, not Rabbi Shim Bar Yochai, it's actually Rabbi Shmiya, in the Zohar, uh, written by Rabbi Shim Bar Yochai, tells us that the fact that the Torah emphasizes eight days in two special mitzvahs means that Shabbos is very important. What are the two mitzvahs? One is circumcision, which is not mentioned in our parsha. And this rabbi says that the reason that a baby has to be circumcised on the eighth day and not earlier, and on the seventh day or earlier, is because in order for the baby to be ready for circumcision, he has to go through a Shabbos. Similarly, in order for an animal to be able to be brought as an offering, the animal has to go through a Shabbos. That means that part of the process of creation of a human being is a Shabbos experience. Now, what does that tell us? What does that really, how do we explain that? That part of the development of a human being is a Shabbos experience. Let's just think of it from a very simple, because I, I find, especially when it's esoteric concepts, that it's very important to think of it in simple terms. The idea that experiencing the Shabbos develops a human being or develops an animal is because since Shabbos is fundamentally such a different fabric of time than the rest of the week, it grants a certain awareness in a being, including in an animal, that it would not have without Shabbos. And the process of creation, you know, even in modern terms, the way that we understand the significance of human being life is awareness. We call it a sentient being. It's an amazing thing. It's not about something that breathes, right? We know that a person can, God forbid, be brain dead. They're breathing. 
a very different kind of life, and maybe not life. Awareness is a fundamental aspect of existence. It's, if a person is not aware, it's almost as if they're not alive. Almost as if. And of course, it depends on what level of awareness we're talking about. A person who is a creative human being cannot have a proper awareness of Hashem without experiencing a Shabbos. I'm not even talking about keeping a Shabbos, right? We're talking about a baby. It won't be the same experience. We're talking about an animal. It's a simple awakening of reality in a person's consciousness that happens when they go through a Shabbos. That's part of the creation of the animal. It's part of the creation of the human being. Now, this, again, is brought in the Zohar explicitly. That's why an animal cannot be offered until the eighth day, because it doesn't have a full completion until it goes through a Shabbos. It's not a full animal yet. Part of an animal does have this awareness of God. Uh, we have a whole Midrash book. Really, it's a Tarshaval Pep book. It's the different songs that animal sings. It's called Parakshira. You could buy it even in English in your local uh, Judaic story. It's very fascinating. Animals have an awareness. We speak about it in Psalms all the time. Shabbos completes the consciousness of both animal and human being. That's the fundamental principle that we're starting with today. Now, is there anything that completes the consciousness of a human being more than Torah? No. So the Torah is now telling us that the idea of counting from Pesach until Shavuos is to grow your consciousness, awareness of Hashem in ever deeper and growing manners. It starts on Pesach because Pesach was a total brain shock into the world about the existence of Hashem. Pesach is referred to as Shabbos because of the smiting of the firstborn, which happens on Pesach, and the very clear demonstration of God selecting this people and intervening in the world and taking the Jewish people out of the world is a complete paradigm shift, which is another way to talk about Shabbos. Shabbos is a paradigm shift from one form of consciousness to a higher form of consciousness. Pesach was a stark paradigm shift of consciousness in the world, that's why there are so many movies about it, about the existence of God. That's why the whole Torah speaks, right? The Havdil news, but just to tell us that people are actually affected. The Torah speaks endlessly about leaving Egypt because that develops a new consciousness of the human being. That is called a Shabbos. And what we are counting, when we are counting the 50 days of the Omer, is the ability to have endless paradigm shifts towards a greater consciousness of God that is ultimately capped off by a face-to-face -face communication with God on the holiday of Shavuos. That is the ultimate experience we can have. Now, of course, because that experience is going to be infinite, it can keep growing uh, from level to level, from year to year. We have the Sefirot, which many people like to talk about in the Omer. I'm not even getting to all that. I'm talking about really a simple reading of the text. And the text is saying you have to count 50 days, which is seven Shabbos. So number 50, of course, is also always speaks of infinity. So the point is that developing this human being ex experience of consciousness is most, and I should say, most 
effective and fundamentally accomplished through the study of Torah in this time period with another human being that is able to give you paradigm shift called your Chavrusa. It's not enough to study the Torah that you want to study. It's the Torah that is shared. It is the Torah that is communicated, that passes back and forth in the consciousness of human beings that creates the ever-burgeoning, growing, elevating consciousness of God and his wisdom. And therefore, the Talmud is telling us that the 12,000 pairs of students of Rabbi Akiva died because they were functionally deficient in their ability to learn Torah from the other. At the end of the day, people we respect are people from whom we learn. People who we don't accord with respect are people from whom we are not likely to learn. We have to train ourselves in respect, especially when we know that people are so respectable. We actually have to train ourselves in the behavior of respect so that we make sure to continue to be learning from them. It's not just because we owe it to them. We owe it to ourselves. We're not going to benefit from the relationship of a mentor, a friend, a parent, if we don't accord them with respect. One of the projects, as we've mentioned in the past, that you know, we, I'm involved in here is Torahology. And this week I did an interview with one of our hosts um, on the subject of the difference between respecting a friend and a parent. And the difference is not that we shouldn't learn from the friend, but we should learn from the parent. But the difference is that when it comes to a parent, that has to be our automatic posture and presumption. A parent is there to help a child be guided. That's what a parent has to be. And so if you ever want to know if you're crossing the line with a student, I'm sorry, with a child between, you know, parent to friend, it's when the child no longer presumes that they're supposed to turn to you for guidance. Now you are no longer their parent. Now you're just a friend. You might take guidance from a friend, then you might not. But your parent is always the person from whom you're supposed to take guidance, which is why the Torah compares the honor of one's parent to the honor of Hashem and the respect for one's parents, the awe of one's parents. So the bottom line is that the failing of the students of Rabbi Akiva was not only one of you know, not giving the right respect to the other person, but it directly speaks to their issue of, are you able to learn from them? And guess what? A person who studies Torah but can't learn from his friend can't really study Torah properly. That's not real Torah. Real Torah is Torah that is shared, that it has one person with a thought giving over to another person who also has a thought. And the thought that emerges from the both of them, that's the real Torah. So therefore, the Torah says that when Rabbi Akiva was alive and the 12,000 pairs, now we understand why it's 12,000 pairs, died, the world was desolate because Torah in the mind of Rabbi Akiva is not Torah that is being shared. That's Torah in his mind. That's not the real Torah. The Torah was forgotten. It's only when he came and established the five students of the South that then the Torah is alive again because it's being shared. Such a huge problem that exists in some sects of religious Jewish society is that people studying the Torah don't always understand their obligation to either have a teacher or to have students. They think that there's an ideal called sitting in front of a book and learning your whole life. Now, that's a wonderful thing in a certain way. 
but it's an actual devastation of what Torah is meant to be. Unfortunately, that's the truth. And we see this very clearly from the Talmud. So what's the reason that the students of Rabbi Akiva die? What's the reason that out of all possible deaths, they die the worst possible one? That just seems beyond the pale to understand such a horrible concept. But the answer is, and this is what I think is one of the critical points of today, if a person has an ability that is transformational, that is supremely useful to other human beings, and they don't implement it, they unfortunately do deserve a bitter end. I know that's heavy, but it's also true. Now let's distinguish a little bit. You have a person who tragically never, never grew his potential. He never developed himself properly. Okay, that's tragic by itself. Let me give an example that I'm sure we've all heard stories about. Is there a difference between a child who is, let's just say, God forbid, 12 years old and killed, or a bride or a groom just on their wedding day before marriage, and they are killed? One of them is killed. Everybody feels that the second one is much more tragic. It's weird, right? Here they are about to celebrate the happiest day in their life, killed, or six years or 10 years earlier, killed. They're both horrible. But one stands out much more vividly because they're at the precipice of achieving completion and beingness of development to be the people that they can be. That's much more tragic. So here you have the students of Rabbi Akiva that are given the greatest Talmudic sage of all time. That's the way that we think of Rabbi Akiva, the father of the oral law. Moshe Rabbeinu himself says, right, the giver of the Torah himself says, I should study Torah from Rabbi Akiva. They have all that training. They have all that technology, so to speak. But it's completely undone by the fact that they're so captivated by their own ideas that it ends up not actually being Torah because Torah is shared ideas. That's what Torah is. That is a tremendous perversion of the reality of who they are, of what they should be accomplishing in the world. And therefore, the message is not only that they don't deserve to live or that it would be dangerous for them to give the Torah to the next generation, to give over a Torah improperly, which is huge by itself, but it's such a perversion. It's so selfish. It's so narcissistic that actually they deserve a really horrible end. And it sounds so strange because, hey, they're righteous people, they're studying Torah, we think, you know, the world of them. But at the end of the day, it's not about my experience, it's about what's good for the world that's important. And God says, if you're not going to live up to your responsibility of what you can do for the world, if you can, you must. And if not, it's a tragedy, a perversion, and it deserves a bitter end. That's what the Talmud is telling us. I know that's heavy, but it's real, and we have to take that responsibility extremely seriously and to heart in our own lives, so much so that for thousands of years, the Jewish people have been commemorating this tragic story. Why? Because Jews need to know that if they can, they must. Jews need to know this. And you know why? Not only for the Jews' sake, but for the world's sake. 
It's a huge problem that our Jews of today are not living according to their ability with the selflessness that Judaism teaches and dictates, with the impact that the Jews of the world could have, have the, if they were to have this mindset and perspective on the world. That's something that all Jews need to know. And it's so incredible to me how the Talmud teaches us this truth, not in the area of giving charity, not in the area of you know, scientific advancement and you know, being a doctor, for example, but in the area of Torah, which is really our lifeblood. And it's really what powers every Jew's contribution to the world. The pristine truths of the Torah, the profundity of it, that's what really powers Jewish people's ability to impact the world. You can go through that more another time if anybody wants to discuss it at the end. The whole process of Talmud study, which, by the way, tragically has left many of even our religious or very Jewish day schools. Uh, study of the Talmud is not nearly as promoted as it used to be. And this study of the Talmud is really what the Torah is talking about. I should say the Talmud is talking about in this passage that we are discussing. And so, therefore, the concept of because you can, you must, is really what the period of going from Pesach until Shavuos is commemorating. And that's why the Jews of all time need to understand that the students of Rabbi Akiva died in this time. The failure of living up to the potential that you have, that you were trained, that you were designed, that you were invested in to contribute to the world, is such a tragic, epic failure that it deserves not only death, but the worst kind of death. And so in conclusion, and we'll you know, get to everybody's questions and comments, I think that you know, as we're going through this period, we're reading, you know, hopefully counting every night, we're reading many, um, uh, you know, amazing parshios in the Torah, we really need to take advantage of the technology that God gave us, which is we live in a world where there's English translations. We live in a world of Zoom shiurim. We live in a world of access to Torah wisdom. That's the world in which we live. We have all this access. But we have to remember that this responsibility exists in two parts. One is we have to use all that access. We have to take advantage of all of it. We have to contribute to it, right? We all have to study Torah. That's an obligation and responsibility of every Jew to set times for Torah study. But then we have to figure out what is our most important influence in the world. Maybe it's directly in the, in the study of Torah and the teaching of Torah. Or maybe it's taking, taking what we learn from the Torah that then we apply in other areas of our lives and take that responsibility of what Jews are supposed to be for the world and carry it forward. Uh, Dr. Horowitz is pointing out, which is very true, that if you don't know how, you must learn. Right? There's no such thing as the excuse of, well, nobody ever taught me, especially in today's world. We're right now all learning on devices. We're, we're seeing each other now, we're hearing each other now on devices that have access to so much Torah, the entire scripture, the entire Talmud, uh, tons and tons and tons of commentaries. You know, we can say we don't know how to use it. It's, a, it's an excuse, and we have to remember that those excuses can lead to a horrible end. So... I, I think that, you know, God willing, will take this seriously. What I'd really love to encourage everyone today is to not only think about the Torah that they're studying, 
think about, are you studying Torah with a sharing of ideas? Because that's the real Torah. The rabbis tell us the highest level of Torah study is in a group setting. That's actually the highest level of Torah study, like we do and like the ideas that we share afterwards. That's the highest level of Torah study. But also think about how you are becoming an influencer. Because that is your responsibility. You're beginning training. You're beginning technology. You're beginning wisdom that comes directly from God for the sole purpose of you influencing the world correctly. And if you don't, remember what happened to the students of Rabbi Akiva. Questions or comments? Hi. Ah, okay. Raise hand from Rebutal. Very, 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 very. The first thing is, I, I sent you the text that the Kiva did drive, drive from brother, the brother's sins of the Sarri Gamalchis. So he did, but do we know that it was because of this? Okay, so I'm going to tell you a very interesting shot, if I may. It says the Kiva was in the jail, and what happened was they brought in him water, and the guard thought he's going the water is to, to be dig, dig, to dig up to whatever. So he spilled that half the water. So Rabbi Kiva washed his hands. So the student tells him, Rebbe, you're gonna die. How could you wash? How could you wash your hands? You're not gonna have what to drink. He says, I'd rather die. Tumas Mises asked me my own death, and I'm not gonna be over my chavayim's words. It's mind-boggling. What did he touch tell him? He says, he says, Pikiach Nefesh, you have to drink. If not, you're gonna die. I'll die. That's the way a, a, a Rebbe teaches a student. That Torah, but the answer was the student told him all your life. He said, You want to die on Kiddush Hashem. So he told him, If you're not going to drink now, you're going to die your own death. You're not going to die on Kiddush Hashem. So Rukiva answers him tremendously to show what means Chaverim. He says to him, It's better for me to die my own death, but I won't be over on the Isadurabonim of not washing my hands because my friends mean everything to me. That's what he told me. Thomas Mises asked me, even I always wanted to die on the highest level of death. But I'd rather die a death that's my own death, but I won't be over my Chava's words. And I think that's the message that the whole Rubikiva was about. And yeah, let me, let, just one second, let me, because uh, just uh, we're asking to a little bit translate. Rabito is pointing out that when it came to the words, the end of Rabbi Akiva's life, and he only had enough water to either wash his hands or to drink water, he chose to wash his hands because the rabbis have said a person needs to wash their hands every day. And the reason that Rabbi Akiva gave is because it's more important to him to uphold the words of his friends who dictated that edict and that teaching of washing hands. He wasn't just doing it because washing hands is more important. He was doing it because his friends said that that was really important and therefore he needs to respect his friends. But he'd rather die his own death, not going on Kiddush Hashem. That was even... He wants yeah. to do a higher level. Yeah. Something else for Vito. No, I just want to say that the Rikiva died. If you know that he was killed on Yom Kippur, you know, on the day yeah. of, of the day of the highest atonement, and that's when we always read Asari Gamalchis. It had a lot to do with with the brotherly love and the brotherly thing. And the second yes. thing is you're right. Yes. And, and the second thing is that that I, I pointed out once, right? I don't know if I ever said it here. That, that, that never mentioned in Shas what was not the covered between each other. What did they really do? There's one place in Shas where it says when Rabbi Kiva came over with 24,000 Tamidim, am I correct? In that place it says 24,000 Tamidim and his wife yeah. went towards him. Now she didn't get dressed yeah. beautiful because he says my, my husband knows who I am. And there it says he saw a student pushing her and he says 
How can you do this to her? Don't you know that Shali, Vishalachem, it's everything here. And she only said three things. I wish she goes back for another 12 years. So I said, pushing somebody with your hands, not respecting, that was not covered. The lady's pushing her. If you would know, it's my husband. And that's what happens. When sometimes you have an argument and you give a push, you go, hey, what did you say? That's not respect. That's what the Talmud is saying. It might be they were great people, but when you feel that your friend and you're pushing him away, that's the biggest not respect that there is. There's a, there's a respectful way to disagree. Exactly. And that's what was the Talmud is teaching us. That's how far it went. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you, Rebuto. Always a pleasure. We love how you love Jews. Eva? Yeah, I, I have yeah. a... Uh, uh, admin note, this is Adrian. I have an upraised hand. Again, uh, in, on the reactions menu at the bottom, you can click on it and raise your hand and lower your hand so that Rabbi Akiva can call on people in an orderly fashion. A quick admin note, I uh, please, uh, I posted an email address where you can send a request to be added to our email list. You're on the WhatsApp chat. But we also advise people by email. So please let us know if you want to be added to that list for announcements. A, 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 just a, a point on the question of how to disagree. Because learning Talmud is, is, is a process of disputation. It's supposed to be collaborative, and yet there's confrontation and disputation. So the question is, how, what is it going too far? To have a constructive discussion where you have a disagreement without becoming adversarial. One of the things that, that concern me, and, and I'd like to, the rabbi's comments on this in the group, is that we have created factions. The issue of sinas chinam, of baseless hatred in the world, is when people create factions and parties, and they take positions against each other, not based on actual opinions or personal affronts, but, but based on the fact that you belong to a group and you have identified yourself as a part of that group in opposition to another group. So we talk about Hillel and Shammai having disagreements, but kind of getting along and it's okay. But it's really a slippery slope. And we see today when people argue in their own mind for the sake of heaven, L'shem Shammayim, but end up taking factions, end up being uh, demeaning other groups of Jews that have moderately or significantly different opinions. And pretty soon we are back in the place, I fear, in which the, the very righteous students of Rabbi Akiva got in trouble. So if they could get in trouble at their level, how much trouble are we in when we start attacking each other and, and, and arguing with each other in a factional way, not in a, in, in, in a manner that is, that is for good? And I'm, I'm not sure. I want the rabbi's thoughts on this because he ha he's an ecumenical thinker, and, and, and I'd like to know how we can deal with this and not get caught up in it. That's happening in so, Israel. That's, that's probably the message. Yeah. That's why the yeah, partial is so relevant because everybody, you know, they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I'm sure that all the students of Rabbi Akiva, while they were disrespecting each other, were were, were motivated by by spiritual and noble intentions, and yet look what happened to them. So, yeah. and, and who are we by comparison? Yeah, so uh, definitely excellent points, and I'll address it a little bit because we have a few people with raised hands, and I want to get to them. And of course, everybody, like you said, could could uh, respond to this. Uh, something I learned from my father in practice, not only in theory, is that when other rabbis disagreed with him or other members of other communities disagreed with him, 
he always felt very strongly that as long as they were following the counsel of a real authentic Torah source, he felt no um, negative feelings towards them and he had no disrespect for them. As long as they had their Rebbe, their tradition, that they were following something that was truly credible and authentic, he had no problem with that. And I think that a huge issue is that today people do not have a Rebbe. Uh, this is sadly true even of yeshiva students. Sometimes they do, very often they do not. Sometimes they have one temporarily, and then they're on to the next one, uh, and that's not a good approach either. And I think how it applies to the students of Rebbe Kiva, because they all had a Rebbe, is that even if you have a Rebbe, you have to, the issue here with, with them disagreeing with one another, really or not, according one another with respect, is just to be able to take on the viewpoint. And that was their essential problem. So I distinguish that a little bit from the baseless hatred that, that Aaron Yehuda that you were discussing. And I think we all really need to learn to respect the credible authorities and teachers of Torah that are out there in their different ways. That includes various, you know, Sparty Ashkenazi, Hasidish, you know, Litvish, many, many, many categories of things. And I think it's very important that we try to teach one another that different things are good for different people. And as long as it has credible source, we respect it. Doesn't mean that we have to follow it or that's for us, but we can't denigrate it, right? And on top of that, we should respect it. That's what I want to say about that. Uh, let's go to uh, Henry, please. Yes, uh, the Benish Chai speaks about the 24,000 town meeting that these were the Gilgulim uh, of the 24,000 Shimonites that died in that horrible uh, access, you know, that was done in the, in the Bamid bar. And they came here and they reached a higher level of perfection. And I, he follows the Gilgul even after the 24,000 pairs die. Wow. Another set of Gilgulim. And also, we're, we're doing the afternoon on Sota a few daps ago. We talked about the horrible way that the spies died, their tongues hanging, you know, worms coming out of them. So that sort of coincides with. Uh, what you said that you know, if you're at that level and you don't disseminate or you don't hold responsibility for all the benefit you have, then you deserve deserve to die in a bad way, as controversial and as difficult as that statement is. But my yeah. question is, you know, why is it that throughout Jewish history, with people of such high level, we're not talking about ordinary people, they're not they're nasim, they're princes, they're the best of the rest, chachamim. How is it that? If the, the cream of the crop, if the elite of society in terms of Torah knowledge, you know, are, are, are succumb to such a downfall, then what's going to happen to normal people, to ordinary people? I mean, I understand the severity of it, but it just keeps happening and repeating itself over and over again. And we don't seem to learn a lesson. Yeah. Look, that's a very fair question. Um, so I, I think that that, like many of those questions, have a, a multi-layered approach. Um, so first of all, uh, the greater the person, uh, so the greater or more rigorous is what they have to pass. Right? That's the general rule. Sadiqim are given a tremendous measure of, of accountability because of their ability. So of course, that's a factor. Particularly in the case of Rabbi Kiva students, uh, and would probably be able to apply to the Nassim as well, the example that I'd like to give is one of the five students of Rabbi Akiva that came after these 24,000 is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the Zohar. 
Now, for anybody who studied the Zohar, it is hard to not be completely blown away that he created a whole new prism and verbiage right, and vocabulary of how to understand the same Torah. That nobody ever created such a, it, it's a, a universe unto itself, all the spirots with all the mitot, with all the different ways to think of psukim in a completely different layer than anybody ever articulated before. So imagine that you have that ability, right? And imagine that you're writing the Zohar. It might be very difficult for you to take on a different language and universe and absorb that. So that, again, it has to do with how great a person is, right? But it's really hard to have such a universe in your mind and absorb somebody else's universe, you know, and say, oh, that's something I need to learn from and modify my own. Right? So, again, it's a different way of saying how unbelievably great they were and therefore how big the challenge is to be able to, you know, do something uh, that would feel inhibiting to a person's own creativity. I know this from very many, from several great, you know, rabbis and geniuses and speakers and, you know, teachers of Torah. One of the things they find it very difficult to do is to write Torah because it's so constricting. And they're so busy thinking about word Torah while they're writing it, you can't, you can't even get it out. You know, I'm just giving an example of how limiting something can feel or seem to a person that is so great. And that's a second layer. And then a third layer is we tend to want like an easy out, like an easy solution to say, look, they couldn't do it. How could we do it? But at the same time, we have many great people today that have accomplished things that people from earlier generations did not accomplish. We don't need to go into specific examples, but there are things that in our world are really attainable. And we tend to kind of whitewash that and think in just like sort of black and white terms, are we going to get Mashiach or not? Are we going to build a base of Mikdash or not? Are we going to be perfect or not? Uh, but really there's a lot more nuance than that. And I think even people in later generations like today can be fabulously great in their own way. That's really attainable. It's really attainable. There are people like that that we know. I, I constantly meet people like that. And then in retrospect, I knew people like that. I didn't realize it at the time. I think we have to pay attention because of your question, Henry, to the greatness of the people that we do see that we might just be thinking is kind of normal, but is really not. It's kind of super normal. That's my thoughts for now. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to seeing you. Could you have been? Next week, yeah. Are you be yeah, there? Yeah. I'm okay. planning, God willing. Mr. Hashem, right? Hashem. Hope to see you there. Dr. Goldwasser, your hand is raised. Thank you. That's a simple question that's maybe uh, not so simple, but I want to go back to your comment for before the Rala and Korban. What is you? What is it about Shabbos that is uniquely transcendent or transformative that uh, that allows for that requirement? What is it about Shabbos that makes it so unique? You're talking about the eight days because you broke up a little bit at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What is it about Shabbos that that is so uniquely transcendent that? A, baby has to go through a Shabbos in order to be Mala. What is it about Shabbos? So what I'm trying to suggest that Shabbos does, 
both on a metaphysical level and certainly on a practical level when it's observed. But for the purposes of this, it's more metaphysical because the baby seemingly doesn't have, uh, you know, the practical observance of Shabbos. Shabbos, built into Shabbos is an awareness that the universe is really not about the temporary. Built into Shabbos is the idea that we don't need to work in order to survive. And the reason for that is because ultimately God sustains everything infinitely. Built into Shabbos is an awareness that God himself deals with the universe differently. He himself rested. That means we get a certain um, connection, awareness of God on Shabbos that's not available during the week. My father used to say over a story, uh, I forgot which Sefer writes it, they, they ask the halacha question, what if a person somehow gets kidnapped or lost and they lose track of the days? What day does he keep as Shabbos? So the simple answer is he just starts counting and every seven days he keeps Shabbos. So this commentary wrote, what do you mean? You can't just feel when it's Shabbos? doesn't matter if you don't know what day of the week it is, but you can always tell when it's Shabbos. Right? So there's a certain metaphysical thing that happens in the world that I'm saying affects the consciousness of every living thing, including animals, that there is a creator. That's what it is about Shabbos. It's a paradigm shift. Instead of thinking about the world as the end-all be-all, you know that there's something more. So I guess that I'm, I'm asking how does that apply to a baby that does not have that conscious awareness? Is it more of a metaphysical awareness? More, uh... Yes. Yes. We're going to say that the baby does feel that or sense that spirituality just like the animal is finished being completed when it has that consciousness, yes, that comes from experiencing the Shabbos. That's what we think it's saying. Yes. Hard to measure. How would we know? But that's what the, that's what the Zohar, the other Midrashim say. Yes. Um, doc, I don't see anybody else's hand raised. So Dr. Patterson, would you care to share? Um, sure. Yes, thank you. You just went on mute again. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, well, you, you cover so much ground every time, Rabbi. I don't know where to start. But with regard to Shabbos, that was an excellent question. I mean, what's so what's so special about Shabbos? Excellent question. Uh, Shabbos is one of the names of God, we're taught. Shabbat is one of the names of God. So that the, in a sense, the human being is created in the image and likeness of the Shabbos. The Shabbos is, is a dwelling place. It's the one day of week of the week when we can dwell and, and, and that God can find a place to dwell. Shabbos is to time what the Beis HaMikdash is to space. Uh, it, it's, without Shabbos, there is no dwelling in the world. There's only uh, getting by muddling through. Uh, time itself is the presence of God in the realm of space. Um, and as you say, Shabbos, we open Shabbos, Yom HaShishi, right? It's where creation and revelation meet. Shabbos is, Shabbos means Bereshis bara Elohim, right? Uh, Shabbos means Torah, uh, Shabbos is, is where we find our, the, the, the season of our liberation, the moment of our liberation, which is what 
the, the going from Pesach to Shavuos is a movement into liberation, to freedom. Freedom from Egypt doesn't lie in, now I don't have to work hard for, for no money. A lot of us work hard for no money. Freedom happens at Har Sinai with the revelation of Torah. And, and I think the, the, the counting of the Omer is like a symptom of the ego. We peel away layers of ego from the, 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 the Torah suffocates in the confines of the ego. And of course, Mitzrayim is narrow confinement. Mitzrayim, exile is where the ego reigns. Uh, and so we have, we, we, we step by step, rung by rung, uh, we, we, we open up, we, we make it possible to receive the Torah. Um, and I think um, th 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 we have an expression of this liberation as I read it. When God held, says that the Israelites were gathered beneath the mountain, God is holding the mountain over the Israelites saying, if, if you don't accept the Torah, this, you will die under this mountain. I see this as God, as an expression of love. Look, without the Torah, the weight, the, the weight of the emptiness of a merely material and meaningless reality will crush you. Without the Torah, the Torah is your 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 ascent, your liberation, and it's it, it and it's it is what it is when it's shared. It's called the Torah of Moses because Moses didn't keep it for himself. Right. Uh, so it lives in its trans transmission. Just one more thing with, about if you can, you must. We can more than we think. <laughs> mm -hmm. We are capable of much more than we think. That's the Bakol Me'odecha. There's love God with everything and with the more, with the Me'od. Anyway, that's those are some of my Beautiful. Thoughts. Thank you for, for tying so many things together and giving it such a, a flavor and a spirit and a, a understanding of it. Thank you so much for your insights, as always. I love the concept of the mountain of, of the weight of the, of the physical temporary reality will crush us.